Welcome to the MindVine podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the MindVine podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Welcome to the MindVine podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers, and I'm with my co-host, as usual, Chris Bovey. Welcome. Hey, Daryl, I, I like to see that you got a brand new uh, backdrop there. We had, did we have some budget for? <laughs> uh, no, this is my, no. I think this is my seven-year-old's former curtains. <laughs> okay. We have uh, five of us in the house trying to work and I get the last straw. I get the garage, which is actually quite comfortable. <laughs> I've spent most of the pandemic trying to make my garage as comfortable as possible. But um, yeah, good. this is it. So it's held That's together good. by <laughs> zip ties and super glue and everything else. <laughs> the MacGyver of podcasts. Yeah, yeah whatever, whatever it takes. So, <laughs> um, this podcast, I mean, we'll get right into it. It's a little bit different than what we normally do. Uh, we normally always have a mental health kind of focus, obviously being Ontario Shores and a mental health hospital and and this one you know, may not be as obvious, but uh, we're going to talk vaccines. We're going to talk COVID-19. And I, I, can see the, I can see the link to mental health because um, if this thing doesn't end soon, my mental health is going to deteriorate even more than it already has. And, and vaccines um, are not the only strategy, but they're, they're one that's out there. And we need to, you know, not only for our staff and our community, but it's, it's vaccine season and we need to talk about it. Absolutely. So that brings us to our guest as I try to work the controls in my garage. Um, Pleased to welcome our, our guest, uh, Dr. Daniel Ricciuto. He's an internal medicine and infectious disease specialist at Lake Ridge Health, as well as physician lead for antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention control and the chair of the pharmacy and Thera- therapeutics committee at Lake, at Lake Ridge. Ah. There, almost got it out without stumbling too much. <laughs> Welcome, but Dr. Ricciuto. You get the point. He's a, he's another infectious disease specialist who's in high demand. Uh, it's like uh, it's almost uh, like the Academy Award season for infectious disease specialists. They're on City TV and CTV and and everywhere because people people need to to know the information that they're specializing in. So, pleased to welcome Dr. Daniel Ricciuto. Okay. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Daryl and, and Chris, and maybe I'll just provide a bit of an update. I think um, the the roles that uh, you had me in are uh, are from a little while ago, and and so you know just before the the pandemic started, um, you know my my primary roles have uh, been switched to infection prevention and control. So I'm the medical medical director for for IPAC, and and actually working um, uh, now with uh, other uh, facilities across the the region uh, as part of an outreach uh, program. Um, what we call our IPAC hub. Uh, and I'm also the medical director for our quality and patient experience team at, uh, at Lake Ridge and have a role uh, with uh, what we call our COVID response team, which is uh, a trio of us uh, that um, are, are um, help, helping with the COVID response from the hospital base. And, and so, yeah, you got it. Uh, it's been the last you know, 15 months of um, nonstop uh, COVID, uh, all, all day, every day, um, and uh, yeah, I'm tired of it as well. So, so it, <laughs> vaccines do potentially uh, give us some um, some opportunity here to finally get over this. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll just start with. I mean, 
it's all over the media, uh, the vaccination campaign. Um, obviously, at this point, it's it's what's going to get us out of here. It's not the only thing, but it's it's one is you know probably the biggest tool that's going to get us out of here. As simple as like, why should somebody get vaccinated against COVID? Yeah. So so I think right now there is a lot of COVID circulating, right? So it's as bad uh, now as it has ever been uh, through these last 15 months of the pandemic or so, or just over a year, I guess. Um, uh, and um, so your, your point about, you know, it's not the only thing that's going to get us through. I just want to reemphasize that right now we still need to really be good at these other public health measures with, with masking and distancing and hand hygiene and making sure we're not getting together and in large groups, because um, even with vaccination, the rollout is just not fast enough to be the only thing that gets us through these next couple of months. Down the road, over you know, after these next couple of months, I think vaccines are going to be what really keeps us out of it. So, um, your question about uh, you know why get vaccinated? What is the reason why? And I'll, I'll tell you why. You know, I um, got vaccinated when it was available to me, and there's a few different things. So, for me as a healthcare worker, right, I see patients as well. I take care of patients, and a lot of them are quite vulnerable, um, uh, and you know, and are in the hospital where outbreaks may occur. I took an oath that I um, uh, that I don't cause any harm to uh, to uh, patients. So I have um, uh, uh, you know specifically from that perspective, I know. That being uh, vaccinated, I have a less lesser chance, a significantly lower chance of acquiring COVID and subsequently then passing on the infection to others. So that's one big thing. Along the same vine um, as that, uh, is that, you know, um, I have elderly parents, I have a family. I don't want to pass it on to them. What if I pick it up at work and I bring it home or bring it, you know, bring it to my parents and they develop severe COVID? I mean, I, I don't I don't think I could, um, you know, I, I, I would feel really uh, uh, terrible about that. And I want to do everything that I can to prevent that from happening. And, you know, vaccination is one of those things that can significantly decrease uh, that risk of transmission. <clears throat> then, you know, there's the part of, uh, you know, I'm not not that young anymore. The the risk of uh, personal risk of COVID um, is actually relatively high with respect to admission to hospital or ICU admission. Um, and I want to be able to prevent that risk. And vaccines have been shown to be really good at preventing that risk, uh, if not 100%, but up there, you know, 90 plus percent at preventing these severe illnesses. And along the same lines, I think we don't talk about it enough, but I see, I've seen a number of patients now that are younger that have had COVID and their symptoms even weren't that bad. Like, you know, they felt pretty miserable, but not that bad, but now are like months and months after the initial diagnosis that still have symptoms. Some can't go back to work. Um, and then this is this long COVID or post COVID syndrome. And that's a, that's a real thing. That is not something certainly that, that I want to have. Um, and, and so I think some of those are, are the main reasons. So I guess the last reason, right, which is probably uh, what you alluded to, is, is to provide some community immunity, to have um, herd immunity against COVID so that if enough people within our communities get vaccinated for COVID, then you can keep it away. That means that, you know, this summer cases will come down. And then instead of what happened last year, where in the fall cases started going back up again, in fact, the cases, we can hopefully keep them down if there's significant herd immunity. So, I mean, those are those are all the reasons why uh, I'm vaccinated. And I think they they apply to to most everyone else as well. So, I mean, 
there's so much information out there and, and, you know, in the social media age and media and talking about, you know, the different vaccines and, and, you know, AstraZeneca and clotting, like, I wonder if you can kind of clarify a little bit, because, you know, I think, for example, the AstraZeneca, a lot of people may be waiting to get the Pfizer at a clinic and not taking the opportunity to go to their pharmacy. And, you know, if you sort of dig a little deeper, you know, the risk of clotting is probably higher with birth control and different things. Can you maybe shed some light on on that just to talk about sort of vaccine hesitancy with different products? Yeah, no, it's great because it, it really has been in the media lately. So I think, um, you know, a few things. The vaccines are super safe. So we, you know, there's a, almost a billion people that have been vaccinated across the globe. Um, you know, at very least, uh, um, you know, in the Western world, CDC, Canada, Europe have really good data on um, collecting data on adverse events after vaccination. And that's why some of these super rare things have been picked up. Um, where, whereby normally we wouldn't pick them up if, uh, you know, if we didn't have good surveillance and there wasn't um, so many different people vaccinated. So, so I think your point is really important where we, we have to look at this in context. When you're hearing media reports of these uh, clots, some of which are serious, the, you have to look at it in, in the actual context of, of, the, of the risks benefits of the vaccine. So for instance, with AstraZeneca, there's this type of blood clot that, um, uh, can form, um, and, and it's through the specific reaction actually to the vaccine, S similar to a type of reaction that people get with a with an anti uh, with a blood thinner called heparin that happens sometimes with people in hospital, but it happens in about one in a thousand one in a hundred thousand younger individuals. Um, so, so that's like 30 to 40 year olds. Um, and then it goes down over time, and it happens in just a fraction of that in in those that are 50 and older. The same types of clots now has been shown through a review um, that if you have COVID infection are about eight times as frequent. So you actually can prevent seven times, you know, seven times as many clots as you will get uh, through through that specific vaccine, AstraZeneca vaccine. And then if you look at things like ICU admission, you know, for for preventing um, uh, uh, one clot in, let's say, a 50 year old, you're going to prevent um, 100 ICU admissions. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that's the, um, that's one of the other uh, consequences, uh, sorry, no, 200 ICU admissions in 50 year olds. So, so I think, you know, when you really think about the risk benefits, it's clear that right now when there's really high transmission of COVID, um, that the, um, that the benefits far outweigh any risks of a vaccine. And I think we have to keep these, um, you know, these types of things in context. And then I think your question about, you know, the different types of vaccines, there's now, you know, really good data on all of them. I, I you know, I've told my own you know, family members, like, go ahead and get whatever vaccine is available at this point in time, um, because, um, because, you know, the risk of COVID is, uh, is so significant. I mean, I think there's a couple of uh, differences between the three vaccines currently available. So, so there's the two mRNA vaccines, and that is the Pfizer vaccine, and then uh, the Moderna vaccine. Moderna is, um, we've not had as much of it, at least in, in uh, our region, uh, as, uh, as the um, Pfizer vaccine. So those ones work really well. Um, in, the, in the phase three studies, they have about a 95% protection rate. 
one dose of those, which is now recommended uh, uh, up until four months when you get the second dose, um, still has good protection. That's probably more like 70 to 80 percent um, versus just um, uh, versus the two doses, which is probably more in the real world around 90 percent. Um, and um, uh, side effects of those are very rare. You know, most common things are sore arm, muscle aches, uh, sometimes fevers and chills, especially after the second dose. Um, but uh, those are the most common things that people get. The most um, significant severe side effects would be anaphylaxis, but that's somewhere in the range of, um, of one in 250,000 or something like that, which is quite similar to any other vaccine and lower than things like you know penicillin, uh, for instance. And so, um, so overall has been quite safe. Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, also, they've not been compared head to head, but also is quite effective. The effectiveness might be a little bit lower against symptomatic infection, um, but the effectiveness of preventing severe illness seems to be uh, right about the same as the other types of vaccines. I guess one common in the long run, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more, is that the AstraZeneca vaccine may not cover some of the um, uh, newer variants uh, that are that are popping up in some parts of the world as well as some of the other vaccines, um, but we don't we don't uh, fortunately have those variants circulating widely in Ontario uh, at this point in time. More than ninety percent of the <clears throat> cases circulating um, will be covered by both the AstraZeneca vaccine and the mRNA vaccines. We were fortunate, like healthcare workers and people who work in hospital environments to be vaccinated a, a little while ago, at least our first dose, uh, people in like my position on Ontario Shores. And um, I remember when I was waiting in line, um, one of our staff, you know, was asking questions and they're just like, they were wondering, you know, which vaccine they were going to get. Was it the Pfizer or the Moderna? And I thought, you know, we've gotten flu shots for decades. I've never asked once who made them. Um, right. I was just, yeah, it's a flu shot and you take some things for, you know, for granted, I suppose, but just given the world we're in, we hear about efficacy rates and this and percentages, uh, like, do you think that maybe in some way, like the information around this is actually, um, it, it's so great that it might be actually doing some damage in terms of encouraging people to get out there and get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Um, I think that the attention, obviously, on COVID has been huge over this last year. And you're right, like the amount of detail that is out there in the media and that people are trying to ingest and then you try and figure out like, what sources is coming from and is it actually like uh, true at uh, the information that you're hearing? And honestly, sometimes it's just you know, TMI, right? Uh, yeah. to, that that this stuff is just blurring things. I think I think getting to the basics is that the vaccines work really well and they're really safe. If you compare them to any other vaccines, they're they're you know even potentially more effective and just as safe as any other vaccines that we take. Um, and uh, you know, I think I think we miss that. You know, the other part of this is that the the risk of the disease that we're facing is actually quite significant here. Um, and like, you know, you might get lucky, you might be the person that, um, uh, that you know, is just is, is fine, um, or you might be unlike, uh, unlucky in one of those that end up in hospital. But, you know, the, 
given how things are circulating, um, your case very well could result in, you know, someone else, uh, one or two generations down the road that ends up in, you know, in hospitalization or death. So the, you know, I think the, the gist of it is the vaccines are safe. They really do work. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if we all come together to to accept that we, we can get over this relatively quickly uh, over the next couple of months and like you know I'm, i don't want to say go back to complete normal because uh, i don't know exactly when that will happen but you know get pretty close to normal i'm you know personally even longing for for last summer right when if you remember there were very few cases it was much safer especially outdoors to be together and um you know uh at least want to get there again soon uh, this I want to ask you. This is, maybe has a bit of a mental health connection to it as well, but I, I can only imagine with the numbers going up and the ICU numbers going up, um, and hospitals sort of struggling to build an ICU capacity, and, and everybody on the front lines, and the, and you, you 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 kind of live it day to day, and just like yourself, and then you come out and you you see groups saying hospitals are empty and it's all made up. It must be really mentally hard to live it day and day and then see a narrative that's not even accurate, that's sort of portrayed in the community. And I'm just wondering what's the morale like among, among staff and, and, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that when you see this, these types of conversations that are not even close to being what, what you're living day to day? Yeah. So I'll be honest, like the, the, um, the staff have been very resilient, but it is exhausting and especially now that it's been uh more than a year into the pandemic and, and we're we're as busy and overrun as we have been um uh through this entire year that um it is tiring we you know we've had uh, a, a number of staff um that have been uh you know have, have voiced the concern and and you know are trying to pull through this but it is really, really difficult and taxing. Um, and and I, I can't speak for everyone else, but I'll tell you that I've tuned out some of the, the media. Like I cannot, um, uh, you know, go on social media uh, necessarily. I'm, I'm on Twitter a little, but, but much less than previous. Um, but, you know, honestly, it, it is exhausting and stressful to see these things. And maybe I should be out there more, um, uh, you know, trying to... Uh, uh, trying to bust through those those myths, uh, but sometimes it's just so so much more exhausting and stressful that that it is and frustrating uh, that it's just not wor worth it uh, when we're when we're dealing with it on the front line, right? So um, I think that's a that's a good point. Um, you know, I, I think we're you know we'll get through this. We will, but um, but you know all, all the team members that have been uh, working through this. At our, you know, at our hospital, but also, I'm sure at Ontario Shores and and across the province, um, it's going to be um, it's going to be a tough go over these next few weeks because of the, uh, because of that. You touched on it earlier when you talked about you you know the reason why you chose to get vaccinated and your oath and um, you know specifically to healthcare workers. Majority of healthcare workers are going to get vaccinated. Um, I think that, I'm not sure what the data is, but I did see something really, you know, positive a couple of days ago. But there are a percentage of people that don't like vaccines, uh, whether it's the flu or or COVID vaccine. Um, what would your message be to somebody that may be reluctant in the healthcare industry um, to get this particular vaccine at this time? Yeah. So. Everyone's a little bit different as to why they lack confidence in getting vaccinated. I mean, there are some people um, that just um, um, 
will not entertain the possibility of being vaccinated with anything. And it's really hard to convince uh, or, you know, to have people uh, understand the, the the benefits of vaccination in those groups. That's not the majority. That's, I think, the vast minority. Um, we, we recently tried to look into some of the reasons uh, why uh, staff are not getting uh, vaccinated. And um, there's just some basics out there, right? So some of it is misinformation so that they don't, don't feel that the vaccine is safe enough. And it might be stuff that they're hearing about elsewhere or someone has told them um, or misconceptions um, or myths about uh, vaccine safety. And so that's not uh, that's why they're um, uh, not coming forward to getting it. Um, the other is that they're still... Uh, some confusion about just how effective vaccines are, um, you know, and um, through our work with with long-term care facilities, there's still questions and concerns that vaccines don't necessarily work to prevent infection or transmission of infection or um, or keep people safe. And this is despite now seeing, you know, over 95% decrease in cases as well as deaths uh, in our long-term care, uh, like a, a weeks after we vaccinated, right? So there's just really clear example within our own community here in Ontario of just how amazing vaccines work. And we still don't have everyone uh, on board. Um, but then there's some other factors like just the small barriers that we have in place um, uh, with respect to, to vaccine rollout, for instance. So um, traveling to some of the mass vaccination clinics, booking those appointments, um, especially, for instance, if English is your second language or or let's say you want to talk to a healthcare provider and you've been unable to contact your primary care physician or someone else that you trust um, uh, to talk about it. Like those, these are all barriers that are out there that I think, you know, are, are um, uh, making it um, uh, so that we're not vaccinating, you know, the vast majority of our healthcare workers. Um, I would say that we're getting there. You know, there there are a number of st of um, healthcare workers that decided in December or January when they were first offered the vaccine not to be vaccinated then, but have kind of come around to it and have um, you know looked at the data, felt more comfortable with other uh, colleagues being vaccinated showing that it has been safe. I mean, we, we've clearly shown that um, even amongst our uh, our own team members that um, uh, the vaccine is very protective against uh, acquiring infection. And I, I think some people are starting to come around. There's going to be a lot of work um, to do with this, um, uh, though they're moving it forward. I think it's going to kind of move from this sort of mass style of vaccination. And I think that's going to keep going until we get, you know, enough people vaccinated. But eventually we'll we'll have to really get out there. And it's starting to happen now with, for instance, vaccination in hot zones or hot and um, with these pop-up clinics, for instance. But I think we're going to have to continue these efforts to bring the vaccine to the people, to remove those barriers, to answer those questions that are making people hesitant and um and then and, and get get more people vaccinated. So strategy wise, we we Definitely, I think we saw the efficacy of the first dose, and we want to maximize the supply without getting more um, vaccines in arms on that first dose. So we've moved the second dose to sort of a four-month window. I was just curious um, for those people that maybe when they're getting up to their four-month, if something gets delayed or something, do we know much about it if they miss that four-month window, if we're getting into a fifth month, or how the efficacy is of, of these vaccines if we, we don't hit that window? Yeah. So I guess the short answer is with the delayed dosing up to four months, um, we don't actually have much data, um, you know, uh, across the world. And it's something that um, we've done here in, in Canada um, 
as far as I know, uh, exclusively with the four-month window. However, there have been a number of uh, countries and other jurisdictions um, uh, delaying dosing up to three months. And in UK, they've actually seen a relatively good response. So, for instance, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's also a hint that um, that uh, if anything, the, the vaccine effectiveness um, overall by giving it at three months um, was even better than the shorter time duration. Um, I, I doubt that it'll get delayed further than four months. And there is a possibility um, that in the future, if vaccine supply becomes more abundant, um, that that time period will shrink down again. Um, we'll see, but um, it, we're not there. We're still, we still need a lot more vaccine supply. And we'll see that there's quite a bit of real world data now on delayed uh, time intervals to the second dose. And one dose of vaccine, if you're counting it from about 14 days after you receive the dose, which is when really when the immunity starts to kick in, is quite effective. Somewhere between 60 and 80%, depending on the population, of how effective that is. And if you think about it, that's you know significantly more effective than, for instance, uh, your flu vaccine that you get every year. Um, now that goes, that does go up after the second dose. And so, um, you know, having two doses of vaccine is um, uh, is overall better. But I think we also have to think about why this has been uh, recommended in the first place. And, and the reason why is that we know that if you can get more people that go from 0% immunity to 60 to 80% immunity um, versus people going from, you know, 60, 80% immunity to 90% immunity, you're going to be able to stop the transmission in the community uh, much more effectively. And if you can bring down that transmission in the community, if you can bring down the community rates, um, then then actually it's safer for everybody over time. And that's really the the modeling and uh, that has gone into making this decision and, and why it's uh, um, playing out that way. And um, I'll just, this is a little bit of a hypothesis. It's quite possible by delaying the doses um, to four months, um, uh, that um, will actually be better protected going into the fall or the winter um, because you likely will have a longer term memory immune response. Um, and that often happens with vaccines that if you if you allow the immune response to kind of mature over time, your your cells to mature, then once you get boosted, if you get boosted at a later date, that memory response, remembering the um, the um, uh, the immunity uh, actually lasts longer. So, so that's a potential benefit. I think we'll we'll have to wait and see. How, you know, we'll probably have more uh, data in the let's say the fall of next year as to just how well this uh, this went. We've touched on some of the information and misinformation in the media, um, and even um, a lot of us would gather information not just from media sources or social media, but you know from our neighbors, our friends, people we connect with, and. Um, when it comes to getting vaccinated against COVID-19, just because I'm vaccinated uh, doesn't mean that I'm, I'm free and clear of the pandemic. Um, I, uh, can you explain to, to people what it means to be vaccinated? Can you still get it? Um, do you still have to be careful? Like when you're vaccinated, how, you know, what are some of the things that we have to keep in mind? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. So that was um, my comment a little bit earlier that we, 
there's so much COVID circulating out there. The chance of being exposed out in the community is actually really high right now um, that those other public health measures need to be continued even if you're vaccinated. And again, the vaccine is not 100%. I think if it was 100% protected every single person that got the vaccine, I would say like, you're vaccinated, you're good, like, you know, be free. You're not going to get it. You're not going to transmit it. But that's that's not the truth, right? So, so realistically, after one dose, as we said, is probably maybe about 70% effective. Um, so there's a chance that you could still pick up the infection. It's a lesser chance that you're going to transmit it, but definitely that risk is still there of potentially transmitting it, especially to someone who has not been vaccinated. And then everyone's a little bit different with respect to their immune response. And we we can't judge it. So the numbers I'm giving you are taking like a, a whole population together. But, you know, maybe your neighbor is on um, chemotherapy for, for um, cancer. And very likely the immune response for uh, to the vaccine for them is going to be lower than it is if if you're not, for instance. Um, and so there's those sorts of factors um, that also will come into play here. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll, again, this goes back to the um, herd immunity, needing enough people to be vaccinated. And right now, you know, if we're at 20 or 25 percent of the population vaccinated, that's just not uh, yet enough. I think we need to see what we saw with the long-term care facilities, where you're, you know, pushing 80, 90 percent of um, of people vaccinated within those facilities, residents and staff. That's when you really start to see that herd effect, and we still see cases pop up. Uh, but those tend not to result in outbreaks or significant transmissions or severe illness. And I think that's, you know, sort of where we need to get to or, or the amount of circulating COVID needs to come down to the point where it is then safe. And you know what? Stay tuned. This will happen. Um, you know, your public health officials will come out um, at some point, hopefully, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a couple of months or sooner, uh, where we have enough people vaccinated and the cases are low enough in the community that some, you know, some recommendations will come out saying like, you know what, if you're vaccinated, you can get together or, you know, here's the, we're going to loosen up the the recommendations with respect to gatherings. And, and that will come, you know, that will come. And, um, but right now it's just too risky overall. Just a follow up to that. Sorry, Chris. Um, Good. If I've had COVID, uh, in the last year, do I, can I still get vaccinated or should I be, should I be vaccinated? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you still should. Um, there is now some data on, uh, the protection against secondary infection with natural, uh, immunity. So by natural immunity, I mean, if you've had COVID before and it seems to be reasonably high going out three to six months or so, um, you know, probably around that 80% range. Now, again, this is in general, uh, not everyone's uh, the same. Um, however, it, it, it seems to come down faster than vaccine immunity. The other thing is that we know that if someone's had COVID before and then they get a dose of vaccine, their antibody levels go really high and they actually have a really good immune response. And it's probably much longer lasting. So the recommendation is that if you've had COVID before, you do you still go ahead and get vaccinated, your immune response will be much better and it'll be much longer lasting in that situation. Um, maybe a follow on to that is, you know, the timing of it. We usually recommend that people are fully recovered from COVID, you know, in the community, realistically, you know, uh, we, we've been vaccinated some people even two weeks after they've recovered. Realistically, you, you could probably wait a couple months safely after you've had COVID before going for vaccination. And that would be okay because you'll have some immunity there. I just wanted to, 
you know, you touched a little bit on the variant of concerns and I just, I, maybe you could educate a little bit. So, you know, we know in Durham that um, we have a high of the UK variant, I think at like 80% yeah. positivity around there. Um, but the vaccine is effective for that you had mentioned against this variant, but I'm just wondering if you explain what, you know, why people need to be more diligent because of the variant, as far as the transmission rate and, and, and just to be extra sort of careful when they're out in the community. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, uh, with respect to the variants of concern, that's a good point. There's, there's three that are currently listed as variants of concern here in Ontario and, and by CDC and WHO. There's others that you've probably heard about that are circulating in other parts of the world. Um, in India, there's uh, some discussion about another variant. Right now, that's not called a variant of concern. It's called a variant of interest. The difference there is probably because we just don't know enough about it as to whether or not it's more infectious or or associated with a higher mortality. But the ones that are here in, in Canada, at least that were were um, uh, are actively circulating, are that UK variant, which is also known as B one one seven, and and that variant has been shown to uh, be more likely to transmit, probably because it's associated with a a higher viral load, meaning that people who get infected. Are are um, have more virus, you know, within their respiratory tract, and and um, I suspect the mechanism is that you're just releasing more virus, uh, you know, uh, into your surroundings, um, uh, and then potentially uh, making it more infectious that way. There was some question about whether or not it was. Um, better at entering your cells and, and, and causing infection. That's not totally clear at this point in time. It may just have to be um, more to do with how much virus you're shedding. So um, <clears throat> we do seem to see that this happens most in really high risk environments. So high risk is inside, you know, especially in winter in Canada, it's dry. The, the dry air is pretty good at um, holding the virus in it for a while. Um, and if you're not wearing masks to protect uh, any of these uh, droplets uh, from from coming out, um, or if you're not wearing a mask, it also will, um, you know, allow you to inhale more virus. So you get that that load of virus that's necessary to cause an infection. Um, so those are sort of like the higher risk uh, scenarios. Um, and I think the 117 variant has been shown to spread better in these um, in these sort of scenarios than, than even others. Um, so I think just overall, we just need to have more vigilance from a public health perspective. It is harder to control this um, virus from um, from spreading than than the than the original viruses that were circulating for sure. But some of the same things apply, right? So masking still applies, distancing still applies, hand hygiene applies. I think in this case, you know, trying to stay outdoors is is actually quite helpful, um, especially if the weather starts to get nicer. I know the snow just melted, but I think I think the weather forecast is going to be better with some sunshine and warmth. And you know, I think that that that's a much safer environment. That if we can if we can get ourselves outdoors, it's also uh, you know uh, uh, kind of good for our, our mental health and vitamin D too. So. In the, I mean, we've been in this for, you know, coming on 15 months, but we've been in kind of this vaccination mode, I guess, like, you know, since December and there's, there's just been so much and it's not just the media, it's how the governments have across the world have decided to roll this out and priority groups and different things like that. Uh, I just saw today that now pregnant women are eligible to receive the vaccine. I know there was age restrictions around AstraZeneca at, at different times. Um, so somebody might look at that and be like, they don't know what they're doing. Um, because it's like, you know, different changes, different times. Like it doesn't, it just, it's not the way we normally, uh, participate in a government run program. So 
can you explain a little bit about why these things happen in stages? Like why now is it okay for pregnant women when the vaccine probably hasn't changed in five months, but now, but now it's okay. Same with the age restrictions, like maybe a little bit of the process and why these kind of stages happen when they do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with you. I think um, when public health officials and others um, are constantly changing guidance, it gets confusing and um, uh, people are less likely to follow it or you or you lose confidence. I will say there's actually good explanations for what's happened here with the vaccines, right? So um, with respect to the age restrictions with the AstraZeneca vaccine, as you saw, you know, in Europe as well um, as the U.S., when we first detected these cases, you know, there was um, uh, a half dozen cases or so in, in Germany, for instance, of these blood clots, there was still not a lot known about them. And it seemed like they um, affect the um, younger populations uh, more. And so, you know, it was decided initially um, to put a pause on uh, vaccination um, with those that were uh, that those in younger age groups, um, accepting that, you know, the risk benefit might be different. But, you know, after um, acquiring more data, you know, you can actually look at it and say, you know, in fact, the risk in a younger population, 40 to 50, is, um, you know, is only one in 100,000 for developing this clot. Um, but we know, like I said earlier, you know, the risk of developing severe COVID is, um, you know, um, uh, or being in an ICU, 50 and 100,000. And so like you, you, those risk-benefit ratios, I think it was those changes were probably made just out of um, uh, an effort to try and be safe and not make mistakes. Um, you know, I think the alternative would, would have been they could have just kept it and waited for the data to come through, but instead they paused it, waited for the data to come through. And once now there's more comfort with um, uh, with the actual uh, risk benefits, they opened it back up again. And I'm glad they did. I think it's the right decision to make, especially with so much COVID circulating. I think it's actually going to save a lot of lives um, to to lower it to the 40, um, you know, 40 to 55 group in addition for AstraZeneca. And the pregnancy um, piece is important because, um, you know, early on uh, in the pandemic, we've had a number of healthcare workers that were uh, pregnant and interested in being vaccinated. And, and in fact, we did vaccinate uh, many, uh, if not most, um, you know, after a discussion. And the, the points to touch on are that the phase three trials that were conducted back, you know, a, you know starting a year ago now, um, did not include um, uh, pregnant women. And, and so, off the bat, we did not have a lot of data on the safety uh, or efficacy of the vaccine in pregnant women. Um, it was theoretically safe. Um, there's no reasons why it would not would not be safe. We give a lot of other vaccines in pregnancy. The only ones we try and avoid are, are live virus vaccines. This is not a live virus vaccine. It's just a vaccine against that spike protein. And so it seemed to be safe, and we did vaccinate a number of women. And in fact, now, um, in the U.S., they just released uh, data um, this last week of about 35,000 uh, um, pregnant women that received a vaccine, mostly the mRNA vaccine. And they looked at these data and they uh, show that there is no you know, significant um, uh, poor outcomes. So they looked at things like uh, preterm labor or other consequences. And it seemed um, that those rates in people that were vaccinated uh, were, the, were quite similar to pre-pandemic times. Um, so, so I think that that adds some safety to the vaccine, and that's why now 
um, it's been recommended for pregnant women with these data saying, okay, we can now say it's safe. The other part of it is that there's uh, accumulating evidence that pregnant women that develop COVID have worse outcomes, right? So there's a significant increase in, in preterm labor of ICU admission um, uh, and in other complications in pregnancy. And so that's sort of the risk of COVID. So uh, now that we know the vaccine is safe in pregnancy, and we know that the risk of developing COVID if you're pregnant is high, um, that's really where those recommendations were to switch, uh, you know, and recommend uh, or uh, add pregnant women to the um, uh, sort of higher higher risk populations. Dr. Rashido, do you, do you have any insight on where we are with um, potential vaccine product for the under 18 and when maybe in the, down the road, when we might be looking at uh, that younger population getting access to a vaccine? Yeah, so I think actually very soon. Um, the, the Pfizer vaccine is actually approved uh, for 16 and up. Okay. Um, and and NACI, which is the um, uh, National um, uh, Guideline Committee for, for uh, Immunization in Canada, um, they actually had recommended that in certain situations, you can give the vaccine if you're between 12 and 15. Um, and then um, just recently, um, uh, there have been publications of, um, of um, safety and efficacy in that age group, right? So the 12 to, 12 to 16 age group, um, and showing that it is safe and it's effective and there's no, no concern. So, so it's very likely that um, vaccination will start to include at least 12 and above um, relatively soon. We need to wait for Health Canada review and approval. Um, but um, there's already some discussion about that happening uh, with respect to um, uh, uh, vaccinating some younger individuals that maybe are at higher risk with higher risk health conditions. Um, as far as children, there are a number of um, studies uh, that are underway now um, evaluating the vaccine effectiveness in children and, and safety, you know, I think is the big thing. Um, you know, children have not, fortunately, have have not, for the most part, uh, developed severe uh, infections with COVID. Um, there have been reports, uh, as we heard of this inflammatory syndrome, that's similar to something else called Kawasaki disease, which can happen. It is fortunately quite rare, um, uh, but overall, the outcomes have been uh, not so severe. That said, especially during this last wave and maybe with the variants, uh, children do seem to be a factor in transmission of, um, of infection in the, in the community. And so I think down the road, it probably will, will end up being rolled out. Um, uh, vaccination will probably end up being rolled out to, to children as well, um, uh, you know, in school so that you know, kids can go safely back to schools without having this, uh, you know, run through and then enter the population. I have one last one for you. Um, this is your life, right? Before COVID, uh, infection control, infectious diseases was a big part of your professional life. And while I can, you know, you've said a couple of times you're looking forward to being outdoors and getting back to normal just as much as, as anybody. Uh, you know, from a career, from a professional perspective, like how fascinating has this been, this journey? Um, you know, the development of COVID, the, how quickly vaccines were developed and, and distributed, like, um, I'm not sure people, you know, especially those of us who might have overload from time to time that, you know, turn off the news for a couple of weeks at a time might not appreciate, but this is a fairly, you know, obviously a unique time in history, but from an infection control perspective, like um, it's got to be, I, I just wonder what your opinion of what the last 15 months have been from a, a, a professional perspective. 
Yeah, uh, thanks. That's a that's a great question. And honestly, I don't think I've had a lot of time to reflect on it so much, um, other than to say, and I tell my kids this, right? I'm like, I know it sucks, uh, you know, but you still have to do the distancing. I know we can't see our grandparents, but you know, one day you're going to look back at this and say that you lived through the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, similar to, to people who, who lived through, um, you know, the 1918 influenza pandemic uh, in a way, because, you know, it's truly global. The, the numbers of um, people infected, you know, I, I, it's, in the, it's in the millions that are reported. It's way more than that, that we just aren't collecting that, uh, that, uh, that data. Sorry, that's as far as deaths. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think it's way more than that and has been way more impactful. And then, you know, in fact, we're living it. Um, for me, we saw so about, I'm about uh, 11 years into my uh, infectious disease uh, practice and, and doing infection control the whole time. You know, I think we were always told like, it's not, uh, it's not if, but when, you know, the next pandemic will occur. I think many thought that it was going to be an influenza pandemic as opposed to coronavirus. Um, that said, <clears throat> despite that and the preparations that were made before, uh, it is really hard to have imagined everything that, uh, you know, um, uh, that, that has occurred, the, the um, difficulty in making decisions, the constraints you have to work around, um, safety factors, you know, just dealing with uncertainty, especially early on in the pandemic, uh, was, uh, was pretty um, incredibly stressful uh, for everyone involved. And, um, and, you know, I think we've actually made a point of a after things have settled and we're not, um, you know, uh, scrambling to, to you know, take care of patients and finding space for, uh, for our sick patients. Um, uh, as things have settled, we're, you know, we're going to, as a hospital system, at least, you know, debrief and really, you know, uh, ensure that if this ever happens again, we are much better prepared um, as well. And then maybe if I can, your comment uh, as far as, you know, the vaccines and the technology, like it is actually an incredible feat of science. I don't know, in, I think looking back on history, the development of these vaccines that are safe and effective, for instance, the mRNA vaccines, like less than a year after discovery of the virus is incredible. Like it, it truly is incredible. Previous to this, it was in the 60s um, when, um, the mumps vaccine was developed, and that was a previous record. It took four years to develop that, and it was very crude. It required uh, um, uh, the, the discoverer who discovered a number of vaccines to, to isolate mumps from his daughter and then bring it to a lab and grow it in, in chicken embryo cells over and over and over and over and over again. And then finally get out to test it, you know, and it was more of a get more guesswork, honestly. And now the precision of the science to identify the target of the virus that we wanted to target with the vaccine and to be able to use the technology that already existed uh, with this mRNA technology to roll it out has been incredible. And I actually think that one of the big things that will come of this is that that mRNA technology, for instance, um, will be used um, for for other things. You know, in fact, you know, BioNTech, who worked with Pfizer, their primary role was for cancer vaccines. And I think you know this is very promising for some other you know hard to treat cancers, or can you develop personal treatments um, for your own 
particular tumor uh, by developing an mRNA vaccine, for instance. You know, these are sorts of um, uh, things that will come from this uh, one day uh, that we'll look back and say, you know, we really did advance leaps and bounds because of all the investment into um, into the science and technology um, over the uh, over the last year. Yeah, and the collaboration, right? The global collaboration. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's very few things that the world can agree on, but getting a vaccine for this was was one of them. And yeah. uh, the sharing of information that, that you mentioned, it's uh, uh, it is remarkable to think like as much as we all want this to be over, the fact that you know, like a year after the pandemic broke out, I had a vaccine, and other people had one in in December and January, and. Hopefully, by the time we get to the fall, you know, we'll we'll have that herd immunity. And it is, um, you know, it hasn't been fun, but it is but definitely been a like a marvel of science uh, that we've gotten this far in terms of vaccines. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us today. This is great. Uh, I really hope that people not only listen to listen to the podcast and, and take away some of your points, but just get vaccinated. You get a chance, whether it's AstraZeneca. Pfizer, like Johnson and Johnson's coming eventually. There's, there'll be others. I mean, this is going to be part of our life for the foreseeable future. So hopefully people just get vaccinated and we can get past this. So thank you very much for your time today. That's great. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Together begins and ends.